Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Heads up, everyone. In case you missed it, last week, I rolled out a new feature on Unconfirmed, a weekly news recap. This summer, I conducted a survey to find out what you, the listener, wanted, and a number of you said you'd be interested in a weekly news recap on the show. Since I've already been writing up what I think are the top stories every week for my email newsletter, it was natural to extend that to the end of every Unconfirmed. So if you're not yet subscribed to Unconfirmed, go do that now and find out what I think were the biggest news stories of the week. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Crypto.com. Get their app and buy crypto at true cost with no fees or markups. Get a metal MCO Visa card with up to 5% back on all your spending. Want more? Download the Crypto.com app today. My guest today is David Andalfato, Senior Vice President at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Welcome, David. Hey, Laura. How are you doing? I'm interested to hear your background because you obviously work at the Federal Reserve, but you are also quite a prolific um, author and speaker on blockchain and cryptocurrency. So tell us how you came to be in this role. Right, sure. So my background is actually as an academic economist. I spent about 20 years in academia and uh, moved to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis in the research division, where I, I got to basically apply the the theories that I was studying and I learned as an academic that involved primarily monetary policy, banking, financial stability, payments, etc. And so when you know this this new phenomenon emerged uh i quite naturally became very interested in this this kind of alternative type of money and payment system so i've been basically keeping an eye on it ever since it's not part of my official uh job description here's kind of just more of like a, a hobby something that i keep an eye on and 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 try to to see how it relates to uh things i've seen happen before in history and also whether or not any of this emergent technology has any, you know, uh, monetary policy implications going forward. And so how did you hear about Bitcoin and, and blockchain? And also, why do you think that they really caught your interest other than, you know, the fact that it, you know, is sort of in your professional sphere? Yeah, well, you know, I, I've, as a, a bit of an historian of monetary 
policy and, and monetary developments, you know, I've, I was aware uh, that there have been many, many attempts in the past of, you know, private currency issuance or non-government currency issuance, and that when I first heard about Bitcoin, I, I think I I think I probably heard it, heard about it, kind of referred to as, as, you know, kind of people were very, very skeptical at the time, you know, calling it a scam. I mean, I think Paul Krugman famously um, <laughs> wrote something on it that, that intrigued me. And so I, I think if I recall correctly, I mean, that's, you know, five or six years ago now, maybe longer, but I decided to peek under the hood to see what all the fuss was about. And, um, I quickly um, – it didn't take me too long to, to realize that there was actually something quite interesting, something quite novel about this this new innovation. Um, and that's just basically how I got started in in studying the, the phenomenon and, and kind of researching it. And I continue to, to do that today. So before we get into the meat of our discussion, which is going to be pretty wide ranging and really interesting, I just want to make sure that uh, the listeners uh, kind of understand essentially like what the Federal Reserve does and also what the different regional Federal Reserve banks do and also the role of commercial banks. So can you just sort of talk generally about, you know, how all of that works Oh yeah, sure. So, the the Federal Reserve uh, was founded in, in 1913. It was uh, founded um, after uh, the United States had, had experienced a, a number of severe panics in the latter part of the 19th century, uh, financial panics, and uh, one of the big ones happened in 1907. And um, and uh, what was decided at the time was that um, you know this this type of very, very, you know, unstable kind of financial structure needed some sort of backstop, some sort of government-sponsored uh, uh, bank to kind of help stabilize the financial system. There were attempts in the in the past, two other attempts uh, that uh, the first and second uh, national banks in the United States that failed to get their charters renewed. Um, the Fed was established as kind of very, it's a very unique kind of creature. It's kind of like this public private sector um, partnership. It's not completely public. It's not completely private. It's kind of this mix. And, you know, just uh, the, the Fed was basically uh, designed to, to basically be there as a, as a backstop and, and to serve as kind of a lender of last resort uh, to provide an elastic currency, as the phrase was used at the time. And and since then, uh, it's it's evolved over time, um, you know, to play a major role in facilitating payments in in the in the United States. It played a big role in 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 in, in clearing checks, for example. Um, and also, there's that part of the Federal Reserve that um, uh, is is responsible. It has congressional mandates to use the powers that it has uh, to to fulfill its congressional mandates of price price stability. And, and full employment. And so the Federal Open Market Committee uh, is, is responsible for that. And that committee consists of the 12 regional Fed presidents plus uh, seven uh, representatives at the Board of Governors. And basically, this is you probably most most of your listeners are probably um, 
aware of, of that part of the, the Fed where, where, where the F, FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, makes decisions about the path of, of interest rates in the, in the economy to help regulate uh, inflation and economic activity according to the congressional mandates that it has. And can you also elaborate on the role that commercial banks play in the banking system? Sure. Commercial banks, I mean, there's a lot of them in the United States, um, you know, thousands of them. And these commercial banks all have uh, accounts with the Federal Reserve Bank. In fact, they they are basically digital currency accounts. Uh, Fedwire, for example, is a, a, a real-time gross settlement system that the commercial banks use to clear payments uh, with each other. So this is kind of interesting in of itself in the context of the talk today because as we speak, you know, for a long time, we already have had a central bank digital currency, uh, but it's been restricted basically to the commercial banks. So the Fed plays a major role in facilitating payments across banks as, as they, uh, you know, help facilitate payments that occur in the, in the, in the private sector. So when you go and you make a payment to, uh, the Starbucks merchant, you know, your account is debited. The account of the merchant is credited. There's got to be a flow of funds from the two accounts. What's happening in the background is that Federal Reserve funds are flowing from your bank to Starbucks bank. And that happens. It happens through these back channels uh, in the in the payment system. All right, so this sets enough of a stage for um, getting into the meat of the discussion, where we're going to talk about all the different ways that developments in the crypto and blockchain world are sort of intersecting with your world. Let's talk first about probably the biggest uh, news of this year, which is Libra. What do you think of the Libra proposal? It's intriguing. I mean, there's been a lot of proposals. This is not new. This is not new uh, by any means. There's uh, been a lot of proposals in the past to to, to create Libra-like objects. Um, the special drawing right at the IMF, the International Money Fund, is an example of this type of Libra that, uh, uh, although it has limited access, there have been many proposals in the past uh, to do it as well, pre-internet days. What's different about this is, of course, we're we're now in the internet era. One and and what and also Facebook is a, a social media giant. It has over uh, two billion users, so um, it already has a really vast network in place already. So people can talk to each other through Facebook, and that's at the end of the day what money is. And money transfer is all about is talking to different accounts. It's information transfer. And so what makes Libra interesting is is you've got this large private entity with this just humongous network already established that could potentially, um, you know, move information around. It already does move information around. You know, it, it kind of you can talk to your friends, for example. But imagine, imagine asking, uh, opening up uh, an account at, at Facebook and, and, and asking, uh, you know, whoever's in charge to debit your account of whatever, Facebook units or Libra units, and, and crediting the account of somebody else. In principle, you know, Facebook could, could be involved in this in, in a way that could... Um, 
could have a major impact on on payment processors around the world on a scale that uh, uh, you know, like I said, it's it's it, these types of proposals have have been around in the past, but just the massive scale uh, that Facebook brings to bear on this possibility is what makes it really interesting. And so, when you say it would have a massive effect on payment processors, like I guess you mean uh, from the sheer aspect of people might prefer to use uh, the Facebook system simply because of its reach. But I'm curious to know also, like, do you think that it would have an impact on central banks? Um, you know, what would the impact be on retail banks, on uh, maybe weaker economies, or or just aside from payment processors, what are some of the other other impacts on existing players? Well, I, I actually just – I don't see what other impact it would have other than payment processing. Um, the uh, – well, that's not quite true. I guess there, there, there might be some effect to the extent that this – monetary object that they create might serve as a com- competitor to other types of uh, monetary instruments. So, so there's that. But, you know... And when you, like, what are some examples of some of the others? Oh, I just mean uh, euros and yen and, and U.S. dollar. You know, currency competition has always been very fierce. And, and um, you know, we have Bitcoin. We have many, many competing currencies out there. And, and central banks have to constantly uh, um, be concerned about currency competition. Usually you're concerned about currency competition of other types of currencies, for example, in, in many emerging economies, you know, uh, people like the U.S. dollar, for example, that competes against the, the domestic currency uh, in principle. Uh, pr- a private currency issuance uh, like a Libra might compete against the U.S. dollar, for example. These are just kind of the potentials. Um, I don't necessarily see that happening. Oh, you don't? Well, okay. Because what I was going to ask you was, you know, David Marcus, who headed up the group that developed Libra at Facebook, he's come out a few times and said that it's not a threat to these existing fiat currencies. You said it could potentially be, but then you actually just said you didn't, you didn't think it would be. Why not? So, so I, yeah, I'm not sure if you agree with David or disagree with him. Um, well, I could. It's it's a complicated issue. You can kind of one could imagine different kind of parameter configurations for how things are are set up. But a lot of a lot of it depends, for example, on what I think the um, how Libra would res- be restricted by by basically domestic regulations. I just think that I mean they're going to have to be compliant um, to the underlying regulation uh, of ever of every comp. Country and I just think once once these these companies uh, are com- compelled to be come compliant that they're going to be on an equal footing with any regular money market mutual fund for example I don't see what the difference is necessarily between Libra and a money fund a government money fund except for the fact that. Facebook, of course, can be accessed globally and very easily uh, relative to, say, a U.S. money fund. I mean, I don't know. So, yeah, that's that's kind of – I see a lot of regulatory hurdles, that I think, that would make it very difficult for, for Libra to kind of displace uh, such a dominant world currency like the U.S. dollar, um, at least – Anytime soon, we should we should never say never, of course. But uh, I don't see it in the foreseeable horizon. And what about for weaker economies? That probably doesn't apply. Like if you were 
you know, a Turkish central banker or Argentine or something, what would you be thinking about the advent of Libra? Well, that's a good question, right? Um, for Libra, I, I again, I think for uh, countries like that, they could impose currency controls that would effectively prohibit their citizens from accessing Facebook, for example, on the internet. That would um, prevent them... You know, I think that one of the disadvantages of, of Facebook is, is is it's it's a registered corporation with a you know there's a, a CEO there's a, they 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 have to be compliant um, if they want to play nice um, and so ultimately they're subject to the uh, regulatory whims of whatever country they're operating in. This is very different, very different, say, than, say from Bitcoin, for example, that, that, that has no designated um, CEO or corporate structure. Um, so it's a very, very different, um, you know, competing against Bitcoin is, is, is completely di uh, different animal than competing against, say, say Libra. So even there, I think, I think that, um, you know, it kind of depends on, on how open, um, how open the, the jurisdiction is to, to permitting its citizens to process payments using some private provider, uh, like, like, uh, Facebook. It just kind of at the end of the day just depends. Yeah. And even what you were saying about how they could shut off access to Facebook, you know, Facebook claims that uh, it will be the Libra Association that will be in charge of Libra and mm -hmm. that there will be other wallet providers that are built on top of this network that's controlled by the Swiss entity. And so even if people couldn't access Facebook, maybe they could access these other wallets. But we're getting really far ahead of ourselves because we don't even know if Libra will launch. Um, but it was <laughs> also, right. <laughs> I was also curious to know, you talked about how Libra is not that different from previous attempts to form, well, like you compared it to the SDRs that the IMF has created. And I just wondered, in general, what do you think of the way that Facebook approached Libra? Like, you know, if you were to have designed a global stable coin, would you have done it the same way? Or, or do you think you know, it was a mistake not to just peg it to the dollar or, you know, just on the design of it. What's your take? Well, I mean, the idea is uh, in terms of like creating a stable coin, I can kind of see the logic of the approach they took. And indeed, I, I think that they may have very well have been inspired by the approach that the IMF took when the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, created the special drawing right. When the special drawing right, however, was created, which of course was many, many, many years before the internet, uh, nevertheless, there were, uh, you know, I, I've seen references uh, to to people back then proclaiming the end of, uh, you know, uh, domestic currencies, that one day everybody was going to be um, making their payments, receiving uh, their payments, their wages, spending their special drawing rights. Um, that it was going to basically displace all national currencies. Well, uh, needless to say, that never happened. Um, and so um, whether or not, um, you know, the the ability of Facebook to leverage up the Internet might might make it more amenable for people to to want to use kind of a basket of currencies as, as kind of the numeraire, the unit of account, I don't know. I mean, I, I just think it was a, it was a big hurdle to to kind of climb. I think I think they may equally well have have uh, have, have um, approached it by just saying, "Look, I mean, we're just going to uh, create these things called uh, Facebook dollars, uh, 
you know, just like just the way any a lot of games create their own credits inside, you know, their their environment. You know, Facebook just cre- can create a, a, its own money. Could be, you know, airlines create air miles. You know, uh, various companies create uh, coupons redeemable in, in 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 money that they issue themselves little little credits. So Facebook credits. And, right, um, but what, what would the value have those been? Like, would it have been uh, pegged to the U.S. dollar then? If you're saying that they should have just created, you know, face, Facebook dollars, is are you saying it should have been pegged to the U.S. dollar? I guess it depends on what your objective is. I mean, if you if you wanted to peg it, you could try to peg it to uh, the U.S. dollar. But I mean, um, you know, I mean, I don't know. Um, I guess you could have chosen that model too. The U.S. dollar is the dominant currency, but I guess for a variety of reasons, right? You might want to move away from having the U.S. dollar being the uh, the dominant currency. Uh, they probably have in mind that they have a, a global set of users, and and um, they they these users may have wanted uh, a currency that was backed more by a basket of of currencies rather than just just the U.S. dollar. So I can, like I said, I can kind of see the motivation behind that, but. I mean, I don't know. They could have alternatively, like I said, just created their own Facebook dollar. And um, right, but um, but that's why I was asking you, like, what would the value of that have been? Like, what would the exchange rate have been? Just a floating? Are yeah, you floating, saying then? Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, just a floating exchange rate. I mean, so you know, one one way to envisage what this um, what this currency because. I guess you have to distinguish between this currency as a store of value and as a as a kind of a what I think some economists have called a vehicle currency. So most people uh, perhaps might not even hold this floating currency, these Facebook currencies, uh, this Facebook currency. What they might use it for is just to effect a transfer of funds. Uh, so they'll just buy it for a very short period of time, transfer the credit to from one Facebook user to the other Facebook user. Uh, to facilitate the payment very quickly that they couldn't otherwise facilitate, say, through the correspondent banking sector uh, in the world. And then Facebook could just like debit and credit accounts, uh, you know, instantaneously, basically, so you'd bear very, very little exchange rate risk. Uh, and then there'd be a separate set of agents uh, or agencies or firms that would be holding this this Libra currency as, as kind of a store of value, absorbing all the risk associated with it. So that that would that would have been a kind of an alternative model. Uh, it's not entirely clear to me which is the best way to go. Uh, okay. Well, since we've been talking about the U.S. dollar, I did want to bring up this letter that was recently sent by House Representatives French Hill and Bill Foster to Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve. And they stated, quote, we are concerned that the primacy of the U.S. dollar could be in long-term jeopardy from wide adoption of digital fiat currencies. The letter notes that 40 countries are looking into into developing digital currencies. It cites the um, soon-to-be-released digital yuan in China. And it concludes by asking Chairman Powell if the Fed is looking into a digital U.S. dollar, um, how it plans to respond to competing digital fiat currencies, what the Fed would need from Congress for the development of a dollar, etc. What What did you think of the letter? And do you think they're right to be concerned about the long-term primacy of the USD? 
No, I don't think they should be concerned about it. I mean, the the U.S. dollar is, uh, if anything, solidified its its hold as the primary currency in the world since the 2008 financial crisis. There's been a lot of uh, regulations passed worldwide, Basel III, for example, that have solidified the the the, the role of the U.S. dollar as a regulatory object. Um, so I don't think I'd be too concerned about that. But even I have to say this: even even if it was true, I mean, who cares really? I mean, most countries uh, most countries don't have a world reserve currency. I mean, it's like uh, Canada, for example, seems to be a perfectly respectable country to live in, and uh, nobody wants to hold Canadian dollars except for Canadians. And uh, when I whenever I visit Canada, it seems like a very nice place to visit. People are prosperous and happy, and uh, you know so. At the end of the day, I don't even think it's a huge deal uh, in the sense that, you know, the wealth of a nation is determined by by its people, its human capital, its productivity, the opportunities it offers. And, and this, whether or not the U.S. dollar is, a, is the world's global currency is actually kind of just peripheral. It's kind of like a, an exorbitant privilege, as they say, for the United States because it gets to export dollars uh, for goods and services and um, – and um, that's kind of a nice benefit to have in some sense. But, I mean, it's not critical for the well-being of a nation. In terms of, like, uh, a digital currency, uh, you know, I'd argue most people have access to digital currency already. I mean, through the um, – they they have access to digital bank accounts, for example. So the commercial banking sector is is how we make payments, right? We We use our debit cards, for example. And most of us, um, you know, I guess most of the complaints, I guess, are, um, uh, well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when even, you know, you didn't have, you didn't have debit cards. You'd actually have to use checks or traveler's checks and things like that. So many young people today kind of take a look at the, the landscape, the financial landscape out there, and they see inefficiencies everywhere in terms of payments. But one thing you have to realize is, is that there's been tremendous innovation in, in money and payments over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Um, it's not like, Things are standing still. Uh, um, you know, in the in the old days, you know, if I wanted to travel to Europe, I'd have to take traveler's checks. You know, um, I don't even know if many of your listeners know what a traveler's check is anymore. You'd have to this go to the Thomas Cook office. To yeah, you'd have to go and, and buy some traveler's checks. You'd have to visit the office, buy the traveler's checks. You'd have to have them issued. You'd have to have to go back, pick them up. You'd fly to Europe. You'd have to go take a taxi to a, 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 a you know a American Express or Thomas Cook office. It'd be closed because it was a bank holiday. So you'd have to go back home and go back the next day. Then you'd go back and visit the office, and then you know you'd, you'd make a a big uh, a, a cashing of of lira if you're in Italy for example, and then you'd have to carry around a wad full of lira in, in a country right. where, you know, maybe you didn't. I mean, today you travel to Europe and I take my I take my, my credit card. I mean, it's great. It's yeah. like, so yeah. there's... Well, so um, if, you, if you were to design like a U.S. dollar CBDC, yeah. uh, how would you do that? Like, would you... Because there are a few options here. Like the Fed could issue a digital dollar where um, it then allows everyday people to have accounts at the central bank and it could yeah. bypass the commercial banks to distribute it. So, yeah. you know, would you go that route? I've seen you written, uh, you have written that you believe that if the central bank releases a Fed coin, that there shouldn't be KYC restrictions on it. So just describe for me your ideal uh, US uh, digital dollar. 
Right. Well, I'll be, I, I'd be very uh, careful about that last statement you, you said about Fedcoin. There's, there's different models of what one means by central bank digital currency, of course, right? Kind of the, the old idea is just opening up the Fed's uh, balance sheet to, to everybody uh, and not just commercial banks. So in a sense, the Fed already does that. Uh, we all own a piece of the liabilities of the Federal Reserve to the extent that we hold paper dollars. And so, you know, one might say, well, if we're allowed to hold paper dollar accounts in our wallets, why can't we hold digital uh, digital money accounts at the Fed directly? Uh, right now, it's just the commercial banks that are permitted to have digital currency accounts with the Fed. Well, that's fine. I mean, what happens now is um, the the digital money accounts that that you and I have to hold are going to be done through through Bank of America, for example or through a money market uh, fund, uh, perhaps. So, you know, in in this model, it's it's basically indistinguishable from central bank digital currency, uh, uh, except that, um, in fact, for, for, for most people, it's just indistinguishable. Um, you know, the, it's... You could have the you you could uh, permit everybody to have accounts directly with the Fed, or you could kind of have it disintermediated a little bit. Let the let the banks intermediate it. That's the model we have now. And the the only quibble that people have is really about with respect to the fees that banks charge, and whether or not their accounts are insured above some certain minimum level, and whether or not they can make payments overseas. Efficiently, these are the things that people are are complaining about, and um, you know, I'm not. I'm not. So, if you were to design it, would you design it? uh, You know, bypassing the commercial banks, or like you kind of said, you could do it either one way or the other. But I'm asking, what do you think is the better way? Yeah. So this, I'm sorry, I got a little off track there in terms of the KYC thing. There, Um, you know, another model of issuing uh, 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 the Fed Fed digital currency is to have it basically uh, as kind of the Swiss anonymous Swiss bank account model as well as kind of a token based model and and. And um, so there's a, a wide variety of, of, of models in which you could issue this central bank digital currency. For myself, I think that uh, many people have made the case that, you know, there it would seem that there might be a role for, for the Fed to provide a basic uh, utility banking service for, for people in the economy, very much like, um, I guess, the U.S. Postal Savings Bank did for many years from 19, I think, 1913 to 1965, uh, just a basic plain vanilla payment processing um, uh, service uh, that, um, you know, would pay kind of a nice little interest rate on your deposits. It would offer real-time gross settlement. Um, It would charge no fees. Your accounts would be fully insured. Uh, and and there would be no other services provided, no no overdraft privileges, for example, um, and that this type of service is kind of like a public option that should appeal to um, to people who might otherwise find it difficult to open up uh, uh, bank accounts in the commercial banking sector. It, it wouldn't it wouldn't attract. It could coexist with with banks. It's not like it would drive banks out of business because banks, of course, offer their clients all sorts of services that they bundle together with payments. So yeah, I think I've I've been a proponent of the idea that the Fed could issue uh, just a very basic, plain vanilla kind of uh, central bank digital currency, which the way I'm describing it is not a Fed coin, but it's just basically permitting people to open up bank accounts directly with the Fed. 
very much by the ways in the way that uh, Americans can already open up bank accounts directly with the U.S. Treasury. You can go to www.treasurydirect.gov, and you can open up an interest-bearing uh, account there at the U.S. Treasury. Uh, you're not allowed to make payments with this uh, with these this, these um, interest-bearing uh, objects, but uh, that's that's something that could be overcome. That's not a that's not a technical uh, barrier. That's just a policy. Uh, Barrier. So one could imagine a world where you could kind of remove that, that barrier and, and people could uh, – one form that this central bank digital currency could take is in fact in terms of treasury money where people could make online payments directly with their www.treasury.direct.gov accounts. Many other models are possible, of course, but that's, that's kind of the basic one I see. All right. So we're going to discuss how all of this could affect commercial banks, as well as um, how cryptocurrencies play in all this. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com sees the future of cryptocurrency in every wallet. Have you seen the MCO Visa card? A metal card powered by crypto, loaded with perks including up to 5% back on all your spending and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix, too. What's not to love? With Crypto.com, not only can you spend your crypto, but you can grow it too. Earn up to 8% per year on the most popular coins like BTC, ETH, XRP, and up to 12% per year on stablecoins like PAX or TUSD. Just a few tasks before you start receiving interest every week. Join the over 1 million others and download the Crypto.com app today. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Back to my conversation with David Andalfato of the St. Louis Reserve, Federal Reserve. Um, is it one thing, you know, earlier when you talked about how you didn't think it was super important that the U.S. dollar be the, you know, global reserve status currency. What's your take then on China's PBOC digital currency, which will be released soon? Do you think that could kind of affect the U.S. dollar's global reserve status? And does that give you concern, especially as you're watching kind of what's going on in Hong Kong and how maybe a digital yuan could 
I guess, increase China's power? Yeah. Um, am I concerned? Um, you know, I'm, I'm a central banker, so I'm paid to get concerned about everything, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I don't see I, – I, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I take uh, kind of the view that, you know, all the power to them if they want to try to do that. I mean, they, they, they might have some success as a regional currency like in, in Southeast Asia, and I, I think that would be fine. I mean, I, I personally don't see them competing on the global stage with the U.S., with the U.S. dollar, I mean, I just, um, you know, you just have to ask yourself. I mean, uh, how how would you rather be holding your wealth uh, in U.S. dollars or, you know, Chinese yuan? You just ask yourself that question. A lot of it depends on how the global community uh, trusts, you know, a particular uh, country. And and I think right now and probably for the foreseeable future, the U.S. has got it. And China hasn't, although, like I said, perhaps China could could have some success, and especially regionally, and I think that would be fine. It's not, it's not like uh, control over this stuff is going to dictate the, the 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 trajectory of the wealth of nations. I mean, like I said, it's just what we're talking about here is 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 record keeping, debiting and crediting accounts, information transfer, record keeping, database management. I mean, it's it's not something that's profound in the sense of like developing human capital, developing entrepreneurial spirit, you know, of, uh, you know, we have to keep our eye on a ball on the ball about what truly it is that that creates the the wealth and, and material well-being in, in a society. And, and yes, payments are important. Uh, yes, it's it, it 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 is advantageous for a for a nation to have kind of a, a favored currency, um, but it's it's not something you know foreboding that you know if suddenly China becomes the world's reserve currency, you know, is the United States economy going to go into a, in a into a death spiral? I, I just don't see that. So we have to be a little bit careful about you know being too melodramatic here about what the ultimate consequences of Bitcoin or some other currency displacing the U.S. dollar. It's happened before. It's happened before in in, in history. Um, and, you know, countries and people just continue to live and prosper. So in the crypto world, many people see the emergence of central bank digital currencies as practically inevitable. And I was wondering, in your world of Federal Reserve bankers, how much are these ideas being discussed and how seriously? Well, um, they weren't being discussed that much uh, years ago when I started to study the phenomenon. But I, I increasingly, you know, you see more and more prominent central bankers um, discussing the idea. And, and indeed, uh, President Harker of the Philadelphia Fed just recently suggested that a central bank digital currency is is in, among the G20 is, is likely inevitable now. Uh, he didn't believe the U.S. would be a leader on that front, but he sees it as, sees it as inevitable. Um, and what did you think of the Bank of England Governor Mark Carney's suggestion to have you know a global digital reserve currency? Right. So uh, that's an interesting idea, right? That's uh, again trying to uh, get away from from the special status that the U.S. dollar has. 
and, and kind of the the issues that it, uh, that it uh, implies for a number of countries that like to peg to the dollar or that issue dollar denominated debt. I think that that um, it's an interesting idea, um, but that kind of from a practical perspective, I just don't see how countries are going to agree um, agree on, on on how to manage such an object. So. At least um, I could be wrong. There might be a way to to do it, but um, I, I actually don't think that politically it's it's a it's a it's it would happen. And so for the for the time being, I mean, I guess we're basically stuck with the U.S. dollar, as far as I'm concerned. And earlier, when I asked you about how you would design a central bank digital currency, you did say that you felt that everyday citizens could open accounts at the central bank thereby bypassing the commercial banks. And you didn't seem to um, to really kind of imply that this would have a huge impact on commercial banks. So do you feel like this is something that they should not be scared of? Um, you know, JP Morgan and Wells Fargo are also working on their own versions of digital dollars. And I just wondered how you thought that, you know, they were viewing all these developments. And if you were in their place, what would you be doing? Oh, well, um, you know, I, I think that they should be worried, all right, but the, the primarily um, in the sense that um, they should be worried only to the extent that they would be worried in quite naturally about the emergence of any competitor, right? So uh, any new competitor on, this, on, on the scene should have them worry about how they're going to compete against this this. Uh, New player on the block, and and so in that sense, with the the Federal Reserve entering into the uh, offering its own accounts directly to citizens instead of having them intermediated, and having these accounts, they pay maybe a more competitive deposit rate, for example, would certainly um, increase um, the cost of of maintaining deposits in the commercial banking sector. So that, that'll definitely uh, it might have some impact on on how much profit they, they could uh, extract from deposit accounts uh, to the extent that in the banking system is a monopolistic sector, you know, one could well argue that this might be a good thing, reducing the monopoly profit and providing better services to, to the depositors. So, um, the other thing is that they'd be able to continue to compete as full-service banks, right? I mean, the, the the model I envisage is just a very plain vanilla payment processor that may appeal to kind of a very limited constituency. Um, people will most likely, most people will continue to have both commercial bank accounts and Fed accounts, for example, in 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 the the, the world I'm envisaging. So. So yeah, I think that they'd have to they'd have to be concerned, but I mean it's not like a threat to their business model. They just have to be concerned about competing more vigorously for for you know uh, for the payment payment services. And do you think that um, this could also have an effect on the fractional reserve banking system? And if so, um, I have seen some other academic papers that say that. If fractional reserve was affected, that that could also, and presumably, you know, if that became less common, that that could uh, have an effect on the creation of credit and even uh, affect monetary policy. Do you think that, you know, do you agree with that? And if so, what do you think those effects would be? Well, well, that's a big question. Um, you know, um, I think that um, 
I think that banks would continue to, I mean, fra- the so-called fractional reserve banking model is exactly the business of banking. Bankings are in the business of of uh, creating money when they extend loans against good business prospects or good collateral. And, and they, uh, they, they, they issue their deposit liabilities to be redeemable on short notice, on demand, typically for currency. And so it's, it's exactly that that stipulation and the demand deposit liability that makes banks dependent on, on reserves and currency. The fact that um, they have fractional reserves is hardly relevant, I don't think, if, as long as they're running their business you know, model uh, in a responsible manner. Um, the amount of reserves they have on hand is, is uh, you know, they, they, they always have the option of borrowing reserves from each other on the interbank market or borrowing reserves as a, uh, at the last resort at the, at the discount window at the Fed if they're, if they're in need of reserves. So I don't see how the business of banking necessarily interacts with what I'm talking about, what we're talking here, which is about the processing of payments. The processing of payments entails the debiting and crediting of accounts. How do we keep the accounts safe, secure? How do we uh, transfer information rapidly at at little cost? Uh, How do we keep the, the ledger secure? These are these are the important questions in any database management system. But these questions are very, very different than the question of how should um, a bank be permitted to extend credit to, say, um, an entrepreneur. That's that's to me. That's a very different question. That I, I don't really see how it directly bears on this question of processing payments. Right. It's more about where people are keeping their money, you know, in order to then later make payments. So if they're keeping it in a commercial bank versus at the central bank versus... Well, like I said, though, but I mean, the, the, the private banks can compete for those deposits. You know, they, they might have to, they might actually have to pay a higher deposit rate to retain those deposits. Or they can okay. borrow the reserves on the interbank market, or they can access the reserves from the Fed uh, at a higher cost. So they're, they're just going to have to compete. So so again, it's, it's, it's more like about what sort of... Um, how are how are these banks going to have to up their game, so to speak, to kind of retain these deposits? You've written that Bitcoin is essentially what you view as like a promising payment system, um, but that as money, uh, right. maybe you view it as less than ideal and also you view it as having a less than ideal monetary policy. So right. I was curious just on this payment system aspect, uh, how you view it competing. Well, right. So as many people have commented in terms on the payment side, I mean, I think that uh, the underlying model is, of course, tremendously inefficient and it's kind of defined, it's designed to be inefficient uh, in a way, kind of the proof of work uh, that underlies the clearing of payments in Bitcoin is is um, kind of the cost one has to bear to make it a permissionless system without any central, uh, you know, trusted third party to do the accounting. Um, so, but nevertheless, in spite of, 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 of that, that property, that one thing that is true is that given the current structure, given the current infrastructure of the worldwide banking system, the correspondent banking system in particular, you know, the kind of the quasi-monopoly status, say, of Western Union and making international remittances, that I could see kind of a role for something like Bitcoin to kind of bypass the correspondent banking system or to bypass Western Union as kind of um, as a uh, as a relatively efficient way to process 
payments. So in that sense, I, I kind of see Bitcoin as being kind of promising and also promising to the extent that it's, it should spur competition in the kind of, kind of conventional space to, to kind of prom, to, to promote competition so that these banks are, are motivated to do better, to kind of uh, use their standard um, database management systems to, to extend their lines of communication um, uh, to make uh, world global banking kind of operate more seamlessly uh, than it does at present. Something that I find interesting about your take here about how it's more promising as a payment system and has less than ideal money money and monetary policy is that actually I view Bitcoin as succeeding so far primarily on the strength of maybe the monetary policy. Um, you know, most people really are treating it as a digital gold right now rather than as a payment system or digital cash. So why do you think that is? Well, I think that inherently it's it's very difficult to um, to displace kind of a, a local unit of account, right? I mean, when you go pay your rent, it's you know, uh, assuming you're in the United States, your, your rent, your monthly rental payment is denominated in dollars, and so if um, you know if you're selling your your services and accepting Bitcoin as payment. Uh, you, you receive the Bitcoin as, as payment and you, you're all happy about that. And then tomorrow you wake up and you notice that Bitcoin is depreciated 20% relative to the U.S. dollar. And suddenly your rental payment just went up by 20% overnight. <laughs> and you're going like, what the heck happened? Of course, the very opposite could have happened. You know, maybe the Bitcoin would have appreciated and you would have been happy. But the whole point is that you are exposed to exchange rate risk. And people do not like exchange rate risk when they're trying to manage their payments. They want something more stable when they're making their everyday payments. They want to make things more predictable. And so the very properties, the monetary properties of Bitcoin, which is to hold the money supply basically fixed, it, it means that the demand, as the demand for Bitcoin fluctuates, it's going to cause very, very volatile fluctuations in the Bitcoin exchange rate, making it basically very unsuitable for making high-frequency payments like paying your workers or paying your rent. On the other hand, um, its 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 monetary policy is kind of probably arguably very good for for as a store a long run store of value. So if you're willing to live with the volatility, that um, it might not be a bad place to park a bit of your wealth as, as kind of a long run store of value. So kind of that's what kind of motivated my comment that I can see it as kind of a. a as a you know, flight to safety security, or is it kind of a long run store of value, kind of something, the digital equivalent to say some sort of commodity like gold, but that as kind of a, an everyday monetary payment instrument, it, it is probably not likely to be taken up anytime soon. And what do you think of a currency devoted to interbank transfers such as XRP? Does that make sense? And if so, like why do you think it hasn't really taken off yet? Well, I don't think these these things are taking off because fundamentally the system we have in place is ultra efficient in the sense I know people, some of your listeners are going to fall off their chairs when I say that, but uh, in the sense that again, you, one really has to sit down and ask what is this fundamentally all about, and this is all fundamentally about debiting and transferring, uh, debiting and crediting accounts in a ledger. This is not 
rocket science. I mean, I can do it on my Excel spreadsheet here on my computer, right? I mean, it's just debiting one one account and crediting the other. So at a fundamental level, this is not rocket science. And if you can trust an entity to do the bookkeeping, it's very, very, very efficient to, to have an accountant just do the debiting and crediting. Uh, you have to worry about security. Of course, you have to worry about resilience. You have to worry about keeping up backup copies. Uh, you have to worry about a whole bunch of stuff. But this is standard. This is just standard problems that people who manage databases have had to contend with for a very long time. Enter kind of the Bitcoin kind of model, the blockchain-based or kind of something quasi in between like XRP, where you want to replace this de designated uh, record keeper with some sort of more communal effort. Uh, in, in the case of uh, XRP, maybe some sort of designated nodes. In the case of Bitcoin, you're opening it up to anybody in the community that wants to become a... A miner, they can become basically a, an accountant and contribute to, to the accounting effort of maintaining the ledger in Bitcoin. That is a very, very different type of model. Um, this consensus-based um, model of recording communal information, uh, like the – could be communal information uh, in general, like the type of information we, we, we keep at a library, at a public library, and this happens to be information in a spreadsheet of, of, of digital accounts of money. Whenever you bring a community to, to get involved in managing a database, you, you introduce all sorts of problems, right? You have to achieve consensus. It's kind of tough to achieve consensus, and, and, and this is – it becomes more and difficult to achieve consensus the larger the group is. And it's not impossible, and I tip my hat to, to Bitcoin for actually solving this problem, but what's true at the same time is despite whatever merits this consensus-based approach has, it's inherently more expensive. And so unless you have a pressing need for a consensus-based uh, record-keeping system, like why would you want one anyways? Um, even people who, who hold Bitcoin often hold it through a trusted intermediary like Coinbase, for example. So people have uh, demonstrated their willingness. They, they'd love to trust their intermediaries. Why would you want to hold something that bypasses that trust? Well, there might be some reasons. You know, you might – some people just might not trust the government. Some people might not trust the central bank. Some people like permissionless access to payments. Fine. But uh, it's going to cost you. And for most most people are, are just not worried about stuff like that. I'm very happy. I get my paycheck. I get paid through the banking system. I, you know, sometimes we complain about the fees that banks – Charge, but you know the answer to that is just you know let's let's encourage more competition and um, but um, you know by and large the banking system does a a, a pretty good job or, or can do a pretty good job and to the extent that it doesn't like in terms of the corresponding banking system worldwide the answer to that is not Bitcoin the answer to that is just to to let banks talk uh, encourage banks to talk to each other uh, uh, more directly. So that I can bypass the correspondence structure, you know, in, instead of going through a, a chain of correspondence, just open up a direct telephone line. What could be easier than Bank A in the United States talking to Bank B in, in Italy just directly? Um, so that's kind of how I, I see things stand, my, my broad view on things. For you as a consumer, let's yep. say that we're, you know, five years, 10 years in the future, and there's central bank 
uh, uh, digital dollars, as well as, you know, these stable coins on public blockchains that are pegged to USD. Um, Which would you prefer to hold? And I know there's different models of stable coins. So which model of stable coin would you put most faith in? Like one that is backed by reserves, one that's crypto collateralized, like MakerDAO, or like a Senor shares model of, of a stable coin? Well, so for, for so under, it's a two-part question. Yeah, for for under yeah. for under two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, I would hold it in a U.S. bank. There's no stable coin in the world that can beat that. I mean, there's federal deposit insurance covers that account. It's completely stable. I know that when I go to the ATM, I can withdraw my bank account at par, and that if the bank ever got in trouble, that my account is fully insured up to $250,000. And indeed, in a crisis, it's probably the insurance is probably going to go up. So there's no stable coin in the world, private stable coin in the world, that can match that that stability already. But I think that the point you're trying to make is that the stable coins do not need to rely on any government insurance re- regime. They they are basically um, their their value is guaranteed by kind of a verifiable uh, set of assets that they hold. And and you ask me the question, um, which of these would I find kind of more um, desirable, safer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not entirely clear to me. Of which ones I would, because as a student of monetary history, I'm, I'm very familiar with what is called unilateral exchange rate uh, pegs, which is basically where a country tries to peg its currency against, say, the U.S. dollar on a unilateral basis. And the way it does that is by accumulating sufficient U.S. dollar reserves or U.S. treasuries to back up the promises of meeting the redemptions at, at the par exchange rate it promises. Almost every every attempt to do that in history um, has basically failed, and I'm not sure why I would expect anything different to happen with these stable coins that are emerging. There's really um, uh, there's there's it's it's conceivable, it's possible, um, and like I said, the models that I know of that could be run reasonably well basically already uh, exist today in the form of government money funds, uh, so. I'm not exactly sure what's what's new here, except I suppose possibly um, that they would enable uh, a user to make, say, cross-border payments more efficiently. I guess that would be the the reason, one reason why you might want to use one of these stable coins. A lot of people espouse the potential for blockchain technology to bank the unbanked, but at least I, I think so far it's really barely made any inroads in in that effort. So why not? What do you and or why do you think that hasn't happened? And what do you think needs to happen for us to get there? Well, I I, I don't know why people think blockchain is is a solution to the unbanked problem. I mean, uh, blockchain, like I said, is a consensus based record keeping uh, technology that might be desirable if you want permissionless access to a database. And if you don't trust a third party to to do the the accounting, but most people who are unbanked, you know, don't have those problems. They're perfectly willing to have uh, permissioned accounts, and, and they're perfectly willing for a banker to debit do the debiting and crediting of their of their checking accounts. So 
the, the, it's like, not like one can wave the magic blockchain and expect the unbanking problem to go away. And indeed, like I said, blockchain is an inherently more inefficient uh, way to, to conduct information transfer uh, relative to a centralized well, I th- system. So I, I think the, the idea is that a lot of banks uh, don't find the unbanked population kind of desirable as customers, whereas you know if you can just open a blockchain wallet, then you have a way to safely store money where you don't need kind of like the approval of a bank. I think that's sort of the the thinking. No, that's a good point. Actually, um, that that is a good point. So I think that. Um, a part of this depends on, on what unbanked you're talking about. I'm not sure if you're speaking of the unbanked in the United States or the globally unbanked. I, I'm not sure that the unbanked in the United States kind of suffer from this. Um, so, for example, compare Canada to the United States, and, and the unbanked issue in, in Canada is much less pronounced. It's almost you know virtually non-existent, in fact. So... There is a question of what exactly is driving this phenomenon of unbankedness in the United States. Is it regulatory? Uh, you know, are there banks being prevented in some way for regulatory reasons uh, from reaching a, a particular constituency? I don't know for sure. I think one would have to look into that. But you're right that, I mean, in the sense to the extent that imagine, well, you know, I guess even, you know, opening up a, a Treasury Direct account, what, what sort of information do you need? You need, you need your, basically your address, you know, you have to identify yourself. So there's, there's that information requirement. I guess what you're suggesting is imagine you have access to a, a payment system where you don't, you could really just open up an account with no, uh, you know, no need to identify who you are. <sighs> The equivalent, I guess, of, of holding of, of holding cash, for example. I, I guess that that would that would be um, encourage people to open up digital accounts. I, I have to grant you that, and and I think that that could be desirable along that dimension. But like I said, there's in many jurisdictions, like in Canada, for example, the the, the population is a hundred percent banked. Virtually, uh, fully banked, uh, and um, it's done under a very conventional uh, banking system. So, it's not entirely clear to me uh, that the solution to the problem of unbanked is kind of like a blockchain-based uh, payment system. It could be, it could play a role. I mean, I'm not going to rule it out entirely, but to me, it's like, gee. If we've got a constituency that's unbanked, why is it the case? I mean, is it is it a regulatory hurdle? Is there something we have to uh, – maybe is it something that a central bank could get in and provide a basic public service? Um, I think that that would be the more natural way to attack this problem of unbankedness than just kind of hinging my hopes on kind of some blockchain sort of solution uh, that, like I said, is probably not a solution. All right. Well, we have run out of time. There's just so many topics we could have covered, um, but it's been so great having you on the show. Where can people learn more about you and the St. Louis Fed? Oh, yeah. Well, of course, naturally, we've got Google and you can Google the St. Louis Fed come to our <laughs> website. And of course, you can Google my name and I have my, my website up there as well. Um, as you, I think, alluded to, I I, I, did, I have a number of uh, 
Uh, I have a blog post, uh, a blog, I should say, that I, I run. It's called Macromania. And I have several posts on uh, that relate to cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Uh, and and if, if uh, your listeners are interested, please feel free to email me or to search for that page. It's called My Perspective on the Bitcoin Project. And very happy to um, to, to hear from your listeners if they have any questions or they, they'd like to push back against anything that I've said here. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Well, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about David and the St. Louis Federal Reserve, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, go check it out now because now we have a new news recap that ends every show. Also, find out what I think are the top crypto stories each week by signing up for my email newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factual Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Josh Durham. Thanks for listening.